0: Awesome. Well, thanks, Pastor Kevin, and happy Easter, everybody. Happy Happy Easter. Happy Easter, everybody. Happy Easter. It's great to see you guys. And uh, welcome, like Kevin said, to all of you who are in the room. We're so glad you're here. Those of you who are watching on live stream, we're really grateful you're able to be with with us. And of course, everyone who's upstairs right now, just want to say hi to you. And uh, thanks for being up there uh, with us here today at Easter. And you guys, I'm just so, so grateful for a chance for all of us to be together here today. And I just want to tell you, if, um, if I come across like I'm a little bit more excited today than I typically am, it's because I am. I I love Easter. I love this weekend. And for those of us who follow Jesus, uh, this weekend we celebrate what we believe is the greatest event in human history. We believe that the grave is empty and we believe that all who put their trust in Jesus find hope and find life and find the forgiveness of sins. And so if you are a person who believes that and is celebrating that today, would you just give it up? Would you just clap with me in celebration for that? Because, (laughs) yeah because we believe we believe and we have we have anchored our hope and our life on the on the reality that Jesus has risen from the dead. And so I just want to say welcome to all of you. And I also want to make sure to welcome everybody. And so I know there's a lot of us that would say that that is our hope, that is our faith. Uh, we have put, placed our faith in Jesus. But I also know that there are many of you who are here today who maybe would say that you're still investigating that. Maybe you're still exploring your faith or you're someone who is open to the things of faith, but maybe you haven't quite landed on exactly what you believe about Jesus. And I just want to say that if that's you, I want to say welcome to you as well. We're so glad that. You You would let us be part of your spiritual investigation. I also want to say welcome. I know that there might be some of you who are here who, quite honestly, the reason you're here today is because you are here against your own will. And so maybe someone invited you to come or they drug you out here, or maybe they just were pleading for you to come and you were just polite and you decided to come along with them. And if that's you, can I just say, I really am grateful that you're here. No matter how you got here, I'm just thankful that you're able to be with us here today. And I also want you to know that if you are someone who is new to this, Church, you're actually joining us in the third week it's actually the third and the final week of a sermon series that we've been in called Trademark. So we're actually ending a sermon series this weekend. Next week, we're going to be starting a brand new sermon series that I'm so excited about. And I also just want to extend an invitation to all of you to come back for that series. I'll talk about it at the end of today's message. Uh, but today, we're, we're ending a series that's been called Trademark. So just to catch you up to speed, what we've been doing for the past few weeks is we've been talking about the illustration of of a trademark, right? And I think all of us know what a trademark is. A trademark is that thing that's identified by those two little letters, TM. Whenever you see that, you know that that is a trademark. And a very simple definition is a trademark is a symbol, a word, a phrase, or a design that distinguishes a product or service from imitation brands and it indicates that something is authentic and originates from a particular source. So simply speaking, a trademark is something that quickly allows you to outwardly identify something. That's what it is. So just to give you a, we all know how this works, but just to give you a simple example, if I was to show you a picture of this trademark logo, you immediately think what? Nike, right? That's a trademark. Very quickly, you identify that this this, this is uh, tied to something. It identifies something as original, as something that's authentic, and it originates from a particular source. Or let's say that I was to show you this, uh, this trademark logo. What would you think? Starbucks, right? And for some of you, you just had a surge of dopamine go through your mind uh, because you are absolutely addicted to this place, right? Or I'll just give you one more. If I showed you this trademark logo right here, what do you think? right? Precisely. You think you think the devil is what you think, right? Because this is the mark of the beast. We all know that, and, and our minds go there. But anyway, that's what a trademark is, right? You see it, and it immediately causes you to say, ah, yeah, Nike, ah, Starbucks, ah, Satan. It makes you do those different things. And so, so here's the question that we've actually been thinking about in this series. What is it that when you observe it in somebody's life, that it's supposed to make you go, ah, that's a Christian? What is it? What, what outward characteristics in a person's life cause you to say that person is identified with the person of Jesus Christ? Now, some of you might hear that and you might think, well, yeah, you know, a follower of Jesus is someone who, you know, wears a cross or maybe they have like a, a Jesus fish on the back of their car or something like that. And that makes sense. But did you know that in the Bible, the Bible is actually going to tell us that there are certain virtues, there are certain characteristics that are to be present in the life of his followers that are to be the things that, that are to be trademarks. They, they mark a person that when you see them, you say, that person is a follower of Jesus. And specifically, did you know that those characteristics or virtues are these three things? It is faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and and love. These three ideas are linked together over and over again in the New Testament of your Bible. It's going to say that the trademark of a follower of Jesus is that followers of Jesus are people of faith. Their lives are marked by faith. Their lives are marked by love, and their lives are marked hope. And so we said these are so important, these concepts are so important, that we actually want to spend three weeks thinking about them. So the first week, we spent some time, and we talked about the idea of faith. And we said, what does it mean to be a person whose life is marked by faith? And then last week, if you were here, you might remember we talked about love. And we said, what does it look like for a person's life to be marked by Christ-like love, self-sacrificial love? love. I just want to encourage you, by the way, if you missed those talks from the last couple of weeks, you can always go back and listen to those on our podcast or on our app. All of those are for free, and we'd love for you to to, to catch up on those. But this week, as we finish this series, we want to talk about one final aspect, and the final virtue we're going to look at is that of hope. We want to talk about hope. And I think that there's no better time to talk about hope than on Resurrection Weekend, than on Easter Sunday. And so if you have your Bibles— I wanna invite you to grab them with me right now. And if you would open your Bible to Colossians chapter one, as we talk about hope, this is the passage that we're gonna be looking at together, Colossians chapter one. Now, let me just also say that if you didn't bring a Bible or you don't have a Bible or you don't have a Bible app on your phone, if you go under the chairs in front of you, you should find a Bible. And if you open those to page 953, that's gonna take you to Colossians chapter one. And let me just say this, we say it all the time, If you do not own a physical copy of the Bible, we would really want you to have one. So please just take one of those Bibles, make it a gift from us to you. We'd love for you to have that. So Colossians 1. Now, as you're flipping to Colossians 1, I want to just provide you a basic roadmap of our conversation today. Okay, so my hope is in Colossians that we're going to gain clarity on three questions about hope. And here's the three questions we're going to think about. Number one, we're going to talk about what is hope. So specifically, what is Christian hope? What is the hope that Christians have? And how is that hope maybe different than any other kind of hope? All right, then number two, we're going to talk about where does it come from? Where does hope come from? Or or in other words, what is the basis of that hope? And then number three, we want to talk about how do we live as people of hope? And so my hope is, on the third point, is that we can get very practical And I want to talk about what does it look like when a person lives with hope and how does that practically uh, affect your outward observable life? Like, how does it actually change your life if you're a person of hope? So those three questions are what we want to think about together. So let's start at the top, and let's first begin thinking about what is hope. All right, take a look with me, Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 3, and here's what it says. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we have heard of your, now notice this, we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and we've heard of the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope, faith, hope, and love, stored up for you in heaven, about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. All right, let's hit pause there, and before we go any further, I think it's important anytime you read the Bible, it's always important that you ask the question, what is the context of what I'm reading? And the reason that's important is because context helps determine meaning. And so let me just give you a little bit of context as to what's going on here. So uh, the book of Colossians, that's what we're reading. We call it a book of the Bible, but that's actually not entirely accurate. It's probably better to think of it as a letter letter. So Colossians would have been like a first century letter. It was written by a guy named Paul. So Paul was a first century missionary. Uh, He was a man whose life was utterly revolutionized by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he actually is writing a letter to a church, to a group of Christians in a place called Colossae. That's why they're called the Colossians. And the reason he's writing this letter is to encourage them, is to encourage them. And I want you to notice what Paul says to these people. He says this. He says, I have heard of your faith and I have heard about your love. You guys have faith and you have love. You have these characteristics and you have these virtues. But do you notice what Paul says? He says, the reason you have faith and the reason that you have love is because they're growing from something. Faith and love is springing from something. It is. It stems from something. And what is it that faith and love stem from, according to Paul? Well, notice he says it stems from your hope. It stems from the hope that you, The reason you have faith and the reason you have love is because you have hope. And you guys, I think this is a good spot for me maybe to give you a biblical definition of hope, a biblical definition. So um, it, I need you to know that in the first century, the way that they used the word hope back in Paul's culture is actually slightly different than the way that we use the word today. So in our setting, when we say the word hope, what we typically mean is we typically mean wish. That's usually what we mean. we mean. We mean, hope is usually optimism, but it's uncertain. Right? That's what we mean. So let me give you a very simple example. Let's say I was to tell this room of people, I was to say, man, I really, 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 really hope that it doesn't snow again this spring. You all would say what? Amen, Amen right? That's what you would say, <laughs> right? Um, but you know what I mean. What I mean is I really, really, really wish that it's not gonna snow again this spring because we all live in Northeast Ohio and we know that even though I'm optimistic it's not going to snow, I'm not certain. I'm not certain. In fact, I, I looked this up. I don't know if you guys know this. Do you know the latest that it snowed in Medina, Ohio in historical record is June 11th? Yeah, that's, isn't that gross? I was like, oh, it's terrible. And so you know when I say I hope it doesn't snow, you, you know I mean, I wish it's not gonna snow. Well, that's not how the word was used in the first century. The the, the Greek word that's used for hope literally means confident assurance. That's what it means. The word literally means to have a certain expectation. The idea is that you are banking on something. In fact, that's actually the language that's used. I want you to notice he actually says that this hope is stored up for you in heaven. And the word stored up for you is actually a banking term. It's the idea of putting something in a safety security box. It's that it's safe and it's secure and it's certain and it's based upon something. And so when the Bible uses the word hope, it's not talking about like the sense of like vague optimism or just being a positive person. It's not just talking about like, I'm a, you know, I'm a half glass or glass half full kind of person. It's not that. It's basically saying, no, I'm certain about something. I'm banking on something. So The question is, the second question, logical question is, okay, well, if that's the case, then where does that come from? If hope is based on something, then what is it based upon? If it's banking on something, what exactly is it that I'm banking on? Well, again, I think you're gonna see a hint in verse five. So look what the apostle Paul says. He says that you have this hope stored up for you in heaven about what you've already heard. You've already heard in, now notice this, here's the key, in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. So Paul says, you guys have this certain hope. Where do they get that? And he says, well, it's come to you through the true message of the gospel. In other words, hope comes from the true message of the gospel, which of course causes us to ask a very logical question. And that's this, what is that? What is the true message of the gospel? If that's where hope comes from, what exactly is that? Well, of course, if if you're part of the Medina East Campus, if you're part of this church, you know we talk about the gospel quite a bit. And the reason is because, well, it's the centerpiece of our hope. That's why we talk about it. But if you're someone who's maybe a little vague on what the gospel is, you know, I think that for a lot of us, when we hear the word gospel, for most people, it's a vague term, but it's a religious, we know that it's a religious word. And usually we think of it as a religious word. So for example, you might even think of like gospel music. And when you think of gospel music, what is that? Well, it's a genre of music. It's religious music. And so a lot of times, with the gospel is like a religious word. But I think it's important that you know that in the first century, the word gospel was actually not a religious term, not originally. It actually was a political word. It had political meaning. In fact, I love the way N.T. Wright, he's a prominent New Testament scholar. I like the way he said it. Here's what he said. so the word gospel, in the Greek, it's the word euangelion, He said, in the first century, as in centuries before and after, it meant good news. So the gospel, very simply, just means good news. That's actually what the term means. It means good news. But more specifically, it was good news of something that had happened that would make a difference in the world. It was used particularly in the context of the Roman Empire, where it referred to news of a military victory, or the accession of a new emperor, or some other event which would bring peace and prosperity insecurity. So this was a term that was commonly used in the first century to refer to something that would have been been good news. It would have been a political event. It would have been, there's a new emperor. There's a victory that's taken place. Something has happened that is changing your life for the better. That's the idea of what good news is. So when the Bible uses that word and it says that there's the true gospel, what is that referring to? What is that good news about? Well, I like the way Romans puts it, in the Bible, Romans says it very straightforward. Here's what it says: It says that God promised the gospel, this gospel, long ago through the prophets and the holy scriptures. It is the good news. It is the gospel about Jesus Christ. So, what is the the true message of the gospel? Here's what the true message of the gospel is: It is the good news about Jesus Christ, about who Jesus is, and about what Jesus has done. About who Jesus Christ is, and about what. Jesus has done. And if you want more clarity on those two things, on who Jesus is and on what he has done, Paul is going to provide it beginning in verse 15. So, down in verse 15, the Apostle Paul is going to give us a definition of the gospel. He's going to tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And so, I want to look at it together, starting off in verse 15. But I got to tell you, before we read verses 15 to 20, I just need to tell you this. This, Guys, this passage that we're about to read, I think, in my opinion, This is maybe the most breathtaking depiction of Jesus Christ in all of the pages of scripture. What we're about to read in this passage is maybe one of the most exalted passages about the true nature of who Jesus Christ truly is. And I just wanna encourage you that if you are a person who follows Jesus, I wanna encourage you on this Resurrection Sunday to just soak this in with me because this is the Jesus that we have placed our hope and our faith in. And here's what the Apostle Paul is gonna say, starting off in verse 15, he says this, he says that the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn over all creation. You guys, this is amazing. When Paul begins talking about Jesus, he doesn't start at the manger. Where does he start? He starts here. He says that Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God and he is the firstborn over all creation. You guys, these are some massive statements, massive claims about Jesus. Notice where he begins. He says, the sun is the image of the invisible God. So what does that mean exactly? That sounds really lofty. That sounds really churchy. What does that mean, that the sun is the image of the invisible God? Well, I think simply put, if I could just rephrase it in my own words, I think what it means is is this. It means that Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. That's what it's telling us. Jesus Christ is the invisible creator God made visible to you and I. Now, let me tell you why that's so significant. The reason that's so significant is because we all know this. There's all these different opinions and speculations that exist about who Jesus is, a lot of different theories about who he was and what he came to do and what he stood for. But what the apostle Paul is trying to help us grapple with is the true nature of who Jesus is. And listen to me, and what Jesus Christ claimed to be true about himself. And what the Bible is going to say is that Jesus is the invisible God made Visible. This is not the only place that you see this. You're going to see it in places like this. In Hebrews chapter one, the sun is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And he is the exact representation of God's being. Or how about this? Jesus himself in John 14, nine, this is what he said. Anyone who has seen me, if you have seen me, you have seen God, the father. Or how about John chapter one? It says, no one has ever seen God. We've never seen God. We've never seen him, but the unique one, Jesus Christ, who is himself God, is near to the Father's heart and he has revealed God to us. You guys, what this means, here's what this means. This means that everything that God the Father wants to say to you and I about, who, about himself is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Everything that the creator God wants you and me to know about him is revealed to us in the person of Jesus Christ, Let me tell you guys why I think that's so significant. Because every single one of us in this room, one thing that we all have in common, we are in different places in our faith journey. We are all on a faith journey and we're all in different places and and, and all those kind of things. But one thing we all have in common is this, is that in our faith journey, we will all experience times, myself included, where we find ourselves full of doubt, full of questions and full of concerns about who God is and what God is like. And so there's going to be times in our faith journey where we're going to find ourselves asking, what is the true character of God? Is God really loving? And sometimes what happens is we'll look at the circumstances of our life or we'll look at the circumstances in the world and we'll have a really hard time justifying the thought that God is a loving God with the circumstances that are around us. And we find ourselves full of doubt. We find ourselves full of confusion. Sometimes what happens is we find ourselves asking questions like, can God really forgive me? And I've heard that God is forgiving, but I don't always feel like I'm forgiven. Is God really a forgiving God? Sometimes we'll ask questions like, is God really capable of justice? Because when I look at the circumstances around me, sometimes it seems like God is incapable of justice. And listen, what the Bible is saying, and this is a profound statement, what the Bible is saying is, listen, all the questions and all the doubts that we have about God and about what his character are like, the Bible says there is one place that you can definitively look that will always resoundingly tell you what the God of the universe is truly like, and it's in the person of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the invisible God made visible. Do you wanna know, does God love you? Does God love you? There's one place you can always look. Look to Jesus. Look at his life. Look at his death. Look at the cross. It will always be a profound declaration that God loves you. If you want to know, does God really care for sinners or does God hate sinners, a place that you can always look is look at Jesus. Look at the kind of people he invited to follow him. Look at the people who surrounded him, who worshiped him. If you want to to know the answer to the question, is God capable of righteous indignation and justice? Look at Jesus. All these things are going to be revealed in him. And so the Bible is going to say that the Son is the image of the invisible God. But then it says something else, you guys, and this is mind-blowing. It goes on and it says not only that, but he is the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, you might read that and be thinking to yourself, I have no idea what that even means. What does that mean that he's the firstborn over all creation? Well, let me clarify this a little bit because um, there actually has been throughout history There's been some misunderstanding about this idea that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. And the misunderstanding actually comes from the word itself, the word firstborn. So I think that what happens is, if you're like me, when we read the word firstborn, what we typically think is we think, well, yeah, the firstborn is the first one who was born, right? That seems to make sense. That's what we think. So a lot of us, we think birth order, right? We think the oldest. That's kind of what goes through our mind. And that makes sense because we live in a time and a place where we seem to be really interested in birth order. There's all kinds of books out there about birth order. In fact, let me just ask you guys just a quick survey. How many of you who are here today, how many of you are the oldest child? I'm just curious. Okay, good. You guys are probably proud of that, which is good. <laughs> and, uh, how many of you guys in this room are the youngest? I'm, I'm curious, any youngest? Okay, yeah, we got the youngest. I've heard the youngest are geniuses. That's what I'm just saying, because <laughs> you, you can tell what I am. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this question. Who's the middle? Any middles? Okay, man, God loves you guys so much. He loves you guys. So um, this is totally unrelated to the sermon, but I just want to share. This just made me laugh. I came across this meme this past week. I thought I'd share it with you. Um, So oldest sibling draws a picture. Parents are like, you're a genius. Wow. Baby draws a picture. Wow, that's adorable, like your face. Middle child draws a picture. Paper costs money. Please stop. (laughs) So that's the thing. So God loves you middle middle children. That's the thing. Hey, love. So anyway, um, when, we read the, when we read the word firstborn, that's what we typically think. So we think the first one, we think of order, right? The first one who's born. And so what's happened throughout history is some people have taken this to say that Jesus is the first one who was created. That God created all things, but Jesus was the first one that God created. But that's actually incorrect. And I'll tell you why it's incorrect. It's because if you actually survey the Bible, and you look at the way that the word firstborn is used, you're going to see that it's not used in the way that we typically use it. So let me just give you a couple examples. I'll just give you two without getting too in depth. But in the book of Exodus, God actually calls Israel his firstborn nation. He says, Israel's my firstborn nation, which is fascinating because Israel was not the first nation on planet Earth. In fact, Genesis tells us that there's a whole table of nations that came about before Israel even was a thing. Or how about in Psalm 89, God says about King David that he's the firstborn king which is interesting because David was not the first king in Israel, Saul was, nor was he the firstborn in his family. David was actually number eight. So what does it mean when the Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn? Well, you guys probably know this. Do you ever notice how sometimes when you when you take a word apart, you actually don't get closer to the meaning, you actually get further away? You know that happens. So for example, if, if I said to you, hey, what's a driveway? If you were to take the word apart, you'd be like, oh, that's a place where you drive. Well, actually, no, it's a place that you park. If I said, what's well, a parkway? You would say, oh, that's a place where you park. Well, no, actually, it's a place where you drive. In the same way, like a butterfly is neither butter that flies nor a fly that's made of butter, right? (laughs) And a sandwich contains neither sand nor witches. You get the point. Sometimes when you pull the word apart, you don't get closer to the meaning. You get further away from the meaning. The same is true with firstborn. So in the Bible, when it says firstborn, what's it talking about? Here's what it means. The word firstborn in the Bible is not talking about order. It's talking about status. It's talking about rank. It's saying that Jesus is supreme. He's superior over all of creation. I think that's evidenced in the very next verse because look what it says in verse 16. It says, in him, all things were created. That's Guys, that is a crazy statement about Jesus, that in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and they are for him and he is before all things and in him, all things hold together yes the Bible's going to tell us this it's going to say that all things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible material and immaterial spiritual and and physical were made by through in and for Jesus Christ it's a huge statement and then it says something that's mind-blowing it says that in Jesus everything holds together everything in creation everything holds together in Jesus now what does that mean that Jesus is holding everything together. Well, it's interesting, the word hold together uh, is actually the same idea as cohere, that in Jesus, all things find coherence. I think practically speaking, what that means is this. Have you guys ever had this moment? Maybe you've experienced this. Have you ever had a moment when you're looking at something in nature or you're looking at something in the world that we live in or something in, in, in creation, and you find yourself filled with this haunting suspicion that man, it just, it really, really seems like there is some kind of intelligent logic behind all of this. You guys ever had that moment before? Like, uh, for example, have you guys ever been in the room when a human is born, when a child is born? And you're like, wow. And I mean, for a lot of reasons, but you're like, wow. And one of the reasons is because you're like, this is straight up magic, How is It it really, 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 really seems like there's some kind of intelligence, there's some kind of logic that's behind this. Or how about this? Have you guys ever considered something called the fine-tuning of the universe? This always blows my mind. It's a little bit nerdy, but this always blows my mind. I don't know if you guys have ever heard, physicists call this, they call it the fine-tuning of the universe. It's also called the Goldilocks enigma. Have you guys ever heard that before? So you guys remember Goldilocks? Not too hot, not too cold, but tell me. Just right, right, just right. So physicists will say that there are over 30 universal constants, these constant laws in the universe that have to be so specific and so right on the money for life on this planet to exist, over 30. Now, I wish I had time to get into all of this, but I, I quite honestly don't fully understand all of this. But let me just list four of them to you. So there's over 30 of these, but things like the strength of gravity, things like the speed of light, things like the rate of expansion, the universe is expanding, things like the strong nuclear force, these are universal constants. They, they remain the same. And what physicists are saying, there's over 30 of these, and if they were off, if even one of these was off by even the smallest percentage, life could not exist in this universe. So just to give you a sense of how, of how absurdly um, specific this is, let me just zero in on one of these. Let me just talk to you for a minute about the strength of gravity. So this is a universal constant, the strength of gravity. And here's what physicists are gonna say. They're gonna say that if this constant varied by just one part In 10 to the 60th power, life couldn't exist. You guys, 10 to the 60th power, that is a 10 with 60 zeros behind it. We can't even fathom a number like that. But let me see if I can try to help us even slightly fathom a number like that. So let's imagine that I was able somehow to make a dial. And on that dial, I was able to make 10 to the 60th power increments on that dial, which is impossible for me to do. But let's just say I was able to do it. So to give you a sense of how big that is, you guys, 10 to the 18th power, that's in the yellow, that is every grain of sand on the entire planet Earth. All the the sand on all the beaches, That's 10 to the 18th. 10 to the 50th, huge number, that's every atom on planet Earth. Every atom and everything that you see around, every atom, that's 10 to the 50th. 10 to the 60th is a number that they're saying that, listen, if that one constant, just gravity, if it were off by just one increment from 10 to the 60th, from one increment to the left or the right, life couldn't exist as we know it. It has to be just right. That's what it's called, the Goldilocks principle. It's got to be just right. So this actually causes mathematicians and physicists to conclude things like this. So Paul Davies, who's a theoretical physicist, says it seems as though someone has fine-tuned nature's numbers to make the universe. The impression of design is overwhelming. Or how about this one? John Leslie says, it looks as if our universe is spectacularly fine-tuned for life. Stephen Hawking, I'm sure you guys have heard of him. I love what he says. He says, a remarkable fact is that the values of these numbers seem to have been very finely adjusted to make possible the development of life. They're all saying, it seems like. Boy, it really seems like. It sure seems like. You know what it seems like? Because it is like. Because it is. Book of Psalms says this, creation pours forth speech, declaring that there is a creator. There is a creator. There is a, the intelligence. And, and Colossians is going to help us say, Listen, the personality behind the logic of all creation is the person of Jesus Christ. It's the person of Jesus Christ. And it goes on, it says this. It says, and he, Jesus, is the head of his body, which is the church. Now, what's that talking about? He's the head of the body of the church. Well, you guys probably know this. The church is not an organization or a building, not foundationally. That's not what it is. The church is actually just a way of describing all who put their faith in Jesus Christ and call him the king of of the universe who believe that he's risen from the dead. That's the church, those who have put their faith in Christ. And isn't it, isn't it remarkable to thank you guys, that 2,000 years after these words were penned, here we are on the other side of the world, and today we are joining billions of people, billions with a B, around the world who are celebrating this morning at the resurrected King of the world. Jesus Christ is the head of his church. And then the Bible's gonna say this He's the beginning, and He's the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything he might have supremacy. Now, what's that talking about? He's the firstborn above the dead. Well, we know what that's talking about. That's talking about what we're celebrating today, that oh. Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead, that Jesus bodily, physically, historically, and actually in time and space and history rose from the dead. And the Bible is gonna say that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the firstborn over the dead, among the dead. Now, what does that mean when it says that? Well, we've, we've learned about firstborn. And what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that Jesus is the first one to raise from the dead. Interestingly, if you've read the Bible, the Bible's actually going to claim that there's actually been other people who have raised from the dead before Jesus, So for example, Lazarus, you might remember, Jesus actually raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's this guy named Elijah and Elisha, and they actually raised people from the dead. So what's it mean when it says that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead? Well, What it means is it doesn't mean that he was the first one to raise from the dead. It means that he is preeminent and superior over death. Everyone else who raised from the dead in the Bible died again, but Jesus did not. He is still alive. And what it means is it means he is supreme over sin and over death. And because of his resurrection, he might in all things have supremacy. Because this is where our hope comes from. For those of us who follow Christ, the resurrection is what tells us, it's what validates that everything that Jesus said about himself is true. I love the way Roman says it. Roman says it's so straightforward. Jesus was shown to be, he was proven to be, he was revealed to be the son of God when he rose from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus rose from the dead, it validated everything that he claimed about himself. Everything Jesus said about himself, about life, about death, about the afterlife, all of those things check out because Jesus bodily and historically and physically rose from the dead. You guys, I wish I had all the time in the world to go into the evidences that exist for a bodily historical reality uh, uh, resurrection but unfortunately, we don't have the time to get into all of that. But I would just commend you this way. If you want to hear more about that and look into that, last Easter, we preached a whole sermon that was just about the evidences that exist for a resurrection. And all I'm trying to say is this hope that we have is based on something. It is based on something that happened in space and time in history. Paul ends by saying this. He says, God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. And through Jesus he reconciled himself to all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, which was shed on the cross. He explains this. Here's what he says. He says, Once you, once we, once all of us, were alienated from God, and we were enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Uh, what the Bible's gonna say is this it's gonna say all of us all of us have sinned is what the scripture is gonna say. And that means that we were born into a condition where we were alienated from God. But here's the good news about Jesus. It says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that's held out for you in the gospel. Then he says this, he says, this is the gospel. Where does our hope come from? It comes from the true message of the gospel. What is the true message of the gospel? It's about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. He is the invisible God made visible. Through him, all things hold together. And what did he do? This God, the creator God came to us on our terms and he died in our place for our sin and he conquered sin and death by raising from the dead and those who put their hope in him will follow him in that hope. That's where our hope comes from. Which leads to the third question. Then how do you live as a person of hope? How does this reality, how does this hope change your life? How does it actually change your life? Well, you guys, I don't know if you noticed this, but did you notice in verse 15 down to verse 20, there is a repeated theme. There is a repeated idea that shows up over and over again. And I'll just show it to you. I'll just highlight it. Do you notice how many times he says the word all? He says, Jesus is over all creation. In him, all things were created. All things, all things, all things, everything. All of His fullness, all things. You see this over and over again. All things, all things. Jesus is over all things, all things. Everything, everything, fullness, all things. What is this trying to communicate to us? To, to us? Well, I think it's pretty simple. I think what it's trying to tell us is that Jesus is above all. He's above all. He is first. He is preeminent in everything. That's what this is trying to show us. So what does it mean then to live as a person who has a hope that this is real and that this is true? Well, I think what it looks like is this. I think if this is true about Jesus, that everything we just read is true, I think there's only one logical conclusion. And the logical conclusion is this. We either live lives where Jesus is first above all things, or we live disordered lives. I think that's, that if, if, if what this is saying is true, that Jesus is first above all things, then what it means is that if if our lives are not aligned with that reality, we are actually living disordered lives. Because you see, I think the question, sometimes we we think the question goes like this. The question is, are you the kind of person who wants to put Jesus first in your life because some people wanna put Jesus first and some people don't? I don't think that's the question. I think the issue is this. If Colossians is true, then Jesus is first. You don't put him first, he is first. And you either live in line with that reality or you live disordered. And by disorder, I know we use that word in a lot of different ways. I simply mean the pure definition of the word disorder. It means that your life is out of order. It means that your life is out of order. Uh, One of my favorite illustrations of this point, and I've used it before, but it's been so clarifying to me, is the difference between a solar-centric and a geocentric model, All right, so let me just explain this real quick. And by the way, I'm sorry, this is another space illustration. I promise you, if you come back here, not all my illustrations are space-related. It just so happened that this weekend, the stars aligned, and so it's just so stupid. I've said that every service, and I I regretted it. Anyway, so uh, let me take you back real quick. Solar-centric, geocentric. Let me take you back to school. Remember this? Back in the 1400s, remember learning this? Everyone thought that the universe was geocentric. They thought the Earth was at the center of the universe, and this was a problem because it, when mathematicians and when uh, and and when um, and astronomers would try to figure out what are the rotations of the stars and the planets, when they were trying to figure that out, it was so confusing. And so they would draw these maps up and they would look like this. This is actually a picture of a map of a geocentric model. The earth is in the center. And so they would be like, how are the planets orbiting? And they would try to draw it out. And it was so confusing. And it was—it just it seemed like there was no apparent logic why things were moving the way that they were moving. There was no apparent reason why things took the course. Everything was on a collision course with everything else. And they just couldn't figure it out. It was perplexing. And then all, you guys might remember, Copernicus comes along. And Copernicus says, hey, well, what if the earth isn't at the center? What if something else is? And he starts to draw up what's called the solar-centric model, where the sun is at the center. And he's like, okay, let's try that out. And so he draws it up. And after he draws the maps of that up, it looks like this. And my guess is, is he probably was like, wow, that makes so much more sense. And I'm guessing, it probably didn't happen this way, but I'm guessing he probably went to his contemporaries. And do you know what his message probably was to his contemporaries? My guess it was, hey guys, good news. (laughs) Gospel, good news. We're not the center. The sun is. And my guess is that they were all like, wow, that makes way more sense. We really need to reorder the way that we're thinking to align with what's true and with what's real. Now listen, if you guys can get your mind around that, That is exactly what the gospel is doing. That's what the gospel is, it's good news. Here's the truth. Every single one of us is groping around in this life and we're trying to find meaning and significance and purpose, all of us are. And we're all trying to determine what is the right way to live? What is the right way to order my life to bring peace and fulfillment and happiness? And all of us are centering our lives around something. We all are. For some of us, it's an egocentric life. We are at the center. Everything revolves around our preferences and our desires and our happiness. And by the way, that's exactly what our culture teaches us. Live life for yourself. For some of us, it's a family-centric life. Our family, our kids, that's at the center. Everything revolves around that. For some of us, it's a career-centric life. The pursuit of career or the pursuit of wealth. For some of us, it's a pleasure-centric life. We're seeking pleasure and all kinds of different things. And that's what drives us. That's in the middle. And quite honestly, I think for some of us, we would say, if we were to be honest about what our life feels like, sometimes we'd say, it feels like this. Some of us would say, man, my life feels crazy and it feels chaotic and I don't understand why even though I'm getting the things that I'm pursuing, I still feel like something's missing inside. I feel like things are off. I feel like my relationships are on a collision course with each other. and It just doesn't make sense. The gospel comes in and God says, I have good news. You're not the center. Jesus Christ is above all. He is supreme above all. I believe that God loves us so much. He loves us so much that he wants us to understand this, you guys. I believe this, that we will never experience the fullness of life that God created for us until we align every area of our lives to the firstness of Jesus Christ. I believe that will never experience the fullness of life that listen you were created for you were God God loves you he doesn't he doesn't want something from you he wants something for you. I don't think you'll ever experience that unless you live in line with the reality of Christ's firstness because he is supreme above all. you guys this is where our new series comes in next week we're going to be starting a brand new series and I want to tell you guys I'm very excited about this series. And in this series, it's for everybody, no matter where you are in your faith journey, it's for everybody. The series is called Jesus Above All. And what we're gonna do is we're going to investigate and explore what does it look like to live a life where Jesus is above all, every area. And we're gonna get very practical. So for example, we're gonna do a series within this series called Jesus Jesus Over My Time. Jesus Over My Time. And we're gonna talk about what does it look like to, for, to live a life where Jesus is over my schedule, over my priorities, and over my pursuits. Very practical. We're gonna talk about this idea of Jesus over my pain. And we're gonna say, what does it look like for Jesus to be the Lord of your frustrations, of your hurt, of your anxieties, of your of your failures? What does it look like for Jesus to be the Lord over those days? We're gonna talk about the idea of Jesus over my body. And we're gonna say, what does it look like for Jesus to be first in my health? What does it look like for Jesus to be first in my sexuality? What does it look like for Jesus to be first, even in my gender? Issues that are very pertinent to the time and place that we live right now. We're going to do a series that's called Jesus over uh, my relationships. We're going to say, what does it look like for Jesus to be first in my marriage? What does it look like for Jesus to be first in my singleness, in my dating? We're going to talk about those things. We're going to get real practical about what does it look like to live a Jesus first life. Because here's what we believe. We believe that we'll never experience the fullness of life that God intended for us until we are aligned to the firstness of Jesus Christ and everything. I wanna invite the band to make their way up here. And you guys, as they do, I just wanna end with this last final thought, and then we'll pray, and and we'll sing, and we'll be done. Listen, next week, we're gonna start thinking about what it looks like to live a Jesus first life, but I want you to know, you don't have to wait till next week to start that. And for some of you, maybe you're even here today, and as we've been reading the Bible, And as we've been reading about Jesus, there's something in your heart that knows, and you don't even know how you know this, but you know that what we're talking about is real and is true. And can I just explain to you that if you're experiencing that, I believe that that is God, that is God himself, getting your attention to draw your heart to him. And so how do you live a Jesus first life? Well, there's a lot of things that you might not have figured out, but here's where it starts. It just starts by by asking him, it starts by just telling him, God, I, I want you to be first in my life. And you could do that right now. There's no special prayer, there's not a magic thing. You Just talk to God, just talk to him. Maybe it's the first time you ever talk to him, but you could talk to him, you could just say, I realize that my life does not make sense and that I need you and I want you to be first in my life. That's where it starts and you can do that right now. You can do that right here. You guys, but I do think this, I think that in light of today's conversation, If you're really taking in what the Bible says, it should force you to consider and reconsider two things. First off, it should cause you to consider or reconsider Jesus. Listen, we just wanna be really straightforward with you. I just wanna be straightforward with you about who Jesus is and about what he claimed to be true about himself. The gospel does not present us with Jesus as just a teacher or a guru or a life coach. It presents us with Jesus as, listen, the firstborn over all creation, the invisible God made visible, the one who holds all things together. And here, listen, guys, here's why that's important. Either that is true about Jesus or it's not. And if it's not true, if it's all, if it's, none of this is true, then who cares about anything that Jesus said? Go live your life however you want to. But if it is true, if he did raise. Well, then, man, we gotta reorder our lives around the reality of who he is. I think it should cause us to consider and reconsider Jesus. I think it should cause us to consider and reconsider what is at the center of my life? What is at the center? If you're a follower of Jesus in this room, is Jesus at the center? Notice I didn't ask you, is Jesus important? See, because my fear is that for some of you, if I said, is Jesus important, you would say, yeah, Jesus is important. He's in my solar system of my life. He's a distant planet in my soul. He's Jupiter. He even has a big part, right? I don't, I don't really know the planets very well, so I'm gonna stop there. But uh, my question is, is he at the center? Because I think that our lives will never make sense until they're fully aligned to the firstness of Jesus. So maybe as we worship and we sing, would you recenter yourself around the firstness of who Christ is? He is supreme above all. Let's pray. Jesus, we just wanna say thank you for raising from the dead. Raising from the dead validates and affirms everything we believe to be true about you, that you are preeminent, that you are first over all things. So God, I pray that you would help us in these next moments for those of us who believe that truth to be true. I pray that the songs that we sing would not be lip service to you, but they would actually be real declarations of our own heart position and our worship and our praise to King Jesus who raised from the dead, who defeated sin and death. We love you, Jesus. We want to ask these things in Christ's name.